Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. He is risen. Parents, you can dismiss your children now for Children's Church if you choose to do that. And the rest of you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We'll be looking at a good portion of the chapter, but we're just going to begin by reading verses 17 through 27 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find a paperback Bible underneath one of the seats nearby in front of you. And the text for our reading this morning can be found on page 523 of those paperback Bibles, page 523. Again, we're looking at John chapter 11, verses 17 through 27. This is the account of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So if you found that place, I invite you, if you're able now, to stand for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 17 of John 11, this is the Word of God. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Some of you might have heard uh, about a five-year-old boy who fell into a 105-foot well in Morocco in early February. And frantic efforts to rescue the boy began immediately. It was confirmed that the boy actually survived the fall, and so food and water and oxygen was delivered down to him during that time. But because of the well's narrowness at the bottom, direct access to the boy was rendered impossible, and so the rescuers had to dig parallel to the well in order to reach the level he was at and then hopefully dig across and able to reach him and to rescue him. But the more they progressed with these rescue efforts, the more delicate they became with rescuers even having to resort to using handheld tools for digging in order to avoid a collapse in the well. The boy was still conscious on the third day after falling into the well, but on the fourth day, the progress of the rescuers was impeded by a large rock that delayed rescue efforts for about three hours. And when rescuers finally reached the boy later that day, on the fourth day after falling into the well, they discovered that they were too late. The boy had died, either from injuries that he sustained in the fall or from hypothermia. They were too late. Perhaps you know the sting of being too late. Maybe some of you have experienced that. Maybe in minor ways, 
Maybe you remember a time where you submitted an important assignment for a class too late and it cost you a letter grade. Maybe you remember showing up at your gate uh, at the airport terminal too late and you missed your flight. Or maybe it was something more important. Maybe you were traveling to be at the bedside of a loved one who was dying, but they passed away before you could get there and you arrived too late. Or maybe you remember someone asking you out repeatedly and you came to realize that you really wanted to be with that person after all. But by the time you came to that realization, they had moved on and become engaged and it was too late. Or maybe you needed to have a conversation with a loved one, maybe a son or a daughter, maybe a close friend that needed to hear from you an apology. Maybe they needed to hear you ask for forgiveness, but you waited and waited. And in that waiting time, their hearts grew hard against you. And by the time you went to that person, it was too late to be reconciled. Perhaps you know the sting of being too late. And it seems like something like that is happening in John chapter 11. We learn from the beginning of the chapter, verses that we didn't read, that a friend of Jesus named Lazarus is sick. And so Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, knowing of Jesus' healing power and knowing of his care for Lazarus, they send him a text message or however messages were sent at that time. Jesus got a message and the message says this, according to verse 3, they said, he whom you love is ill. Now, with that kind of description of the relationship that Jesus had with Lazarus, we would expect Jesus to immediately put on his sandals and head out to Bethany as quickly as he possibly could to help his friend. But that's not what happens. Instead, it seems that Jesus responds too late. And what we read about is delay. So that's the first thing that we see here. We see delay. Earlier in verses, again, that we didn't read, we read in verse 5 this information. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. But it's this information that we get in verse 5 that makes what we read in the very next verse, verse 6, so puzzling and incongruent because the next thing we read is, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. <laughs> what? I mean, that is not what we're expecting to read, and it would be hard to make sense of in the moment. It just seems like Jesus doesn't do anything. He just stays put where he is, seemingly ignoring these desperate pleas from Lazarus' sisters to come and help and seeming aloof to the crisis that people he apparently loves are going through. This is especially confusing when we consider that on other occasions, Jesus finds out that Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever and he goes immediately to her and he heals her. On another occasion... A ruler of the synagogue informs Jesus that his daughter is ill, and he goes immediately to heal her. And still on another occasion, he drives an unclean spirit out of a boy in response to desperate pleas of a father for his son, and he heals them. And still on another occasion yet, he heals the servant of a Roman centurion, a Gentile, a foreigner. He heals the servant of a Roman centurion from a distance just by speaking a word. He doesn't even go with the centurion. He just speaks the word and the servant is healed. And when he finds out that Lazarus is sick, he doesn't do any of these things. In fact, he apparently doesn't do anything at all. There's just delay. And it reminds us that we just don't understand God's timing. God's timing is hard for us to understand. We seek him in prayer in the midst of our sickness 
and our suffering and our need and despair. And he just doesn't show up in time to prevent our loss or our pain. So one of my best friends, uh, probably the godliest, one of the godliest people I've ever met, one of the most beautiful souls I ever met, was named Matt Smith. He left a position at admissions at Taylor University uh, to work in inner city ministry in Pittsburgh in the early 2000s. And that ministry was flourishing, and everybody was shocked to learn that at 33 years old, Matt was diagnosed with colon cancer. And I think everybody who was praying for Matt, myself included, believed that Matt would be healed from that cancer and that he would be given a powerful, wonderful testimony of God's mercy and healing power that would only enhance the ministry that Matt was carrying out in Pittsburgh. But that's not what happened. Cancer took Matt in January of 2005 and left behind a wife, three young children, and a flourishing ministry. Why didn't Jesus show up and heal Matt from that cancer in answer to our prayers? Why does Jesus heal a leper and let Lazarus die? Why does he heal the servant of a centurion but leave his own cousin, John the Baptist, in prison to eventually get beheaded? Why does he heal a paralytic who's lowered down through a roof, a paralytic that he doesn't even know? Why does he heal them or heal him and leave Mary and Martha, women that Jesus loves, to wait and then to lose and then to mourn the death of their brother? It's hard for us to make sense of these things. Sometimes we cry out in desperation, in despair, in misery, in need, in weakness, in sickness, and Jesus does, just doesn't swoop in and make everything better. And if you think that I'm bringing all these things up this morning because later this morning I'm going to give some kind of explanation as to why these things happen, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I don't have an answer for it. All I can say is with the Apostle Paul at the end of Romans 11 when he says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And if we think this appearance of divine delay is only here in John 11, we can easily be dismissed of that notion. We read of this appearance of divine delay quite often. I mean, consider that Abraham had to wait until he was 99 years old before Isaac was born. Joseph had to endure hardship for a really long time before his early dreams of exaltation were realized. After he was anointed king by Samuel, David was hunted down like an animal by Saul for years and years before he ascended the throne. And Moses was 80 years old before he was called to deliver the Israelites, deliver them from 400 years of bondage in Egypt. 400 years. Now that would seem like divine delay. They remained in captivity for 400 years. But on top of that, ungranted requests are hardly non-existent in Scripture either. Just ask the Apostle Paul about his thorn in the flesh or ask Jesus about his own prayers in Gethsemane. Jesus just seems to get there too late. So when Jesus is finally making his way to Bethany, Lazarus has already been dead for four days, we learn in John chapter 11. But as Jesus is making his way toward Bethany, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that it's Martha the one who is busying herself in the kitchen in Luke chapter 10, verse 40, who takes the initiative to go out to meet him before he actually gets there in verse 20. 
And she says to him in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, how are we to interpret this statement from Martha? Is this an accusation against Jesus? Is this some kind of rebuke? Lord, it's your fault that Lazarus is dead. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Or is it actually a profession of faith? Lord, I know that if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You could have done something because of your healing power. Well, it's hard to be definitive about how Martha utters these words, but it's not hard for us to imagine that the anguish of her loss would have been intensified because when she needed Jesus to be there the most, he wasn't there. And yet, we know that Martha continues to cling to faith because she says in verse 22, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. But Jesus doesn't ask anything from God quite yet because it's important that we hear his declaration. Declaration. Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha interprets these words as referring to the resurrection at the end of the age. We know this from her response. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Rebecca McLaughlin Christian author offers these comments about this exchange. She says, we can almost hear this grieving woman think, but what about now? Why won't you help me now, Jesus? And in this moment, Martha stands where many Christians stand when faced with suffering. We have ultimate promises. One day, Jesus will return and put the world to rights. But she writes, we are much more like children than philosophers. Our pain is real, and it's urgent, and it refuses to be soothed by faraway hope. But the reality is that Martha's hope is not as far away as she thinks it is. But at the same time, Martha's true hope is not exactly what she imagines it to be either. Because it's arguable that Martha's focus is on getting her brother back. Now that Jesus has arrived, I know even now that whatever you ask, God will give you. And so it's possible, maybe even probable, that her focus is on getting her brother back still to deal with her pain. But Jesus reorients her thinking with a declaration in verses 25 and 26. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, it might be possible to think that Jesus is talking about Lazarus still being alive. That he's talking about Lazarus' soul specifically, being in heaven even now, that though he has died, yet he lives. Because after all, as Christians, we don't believe that death is synonymous with non-existence. And we don't believe that because the Bible clearly and emphatically teaches us that there is the conscious life of the soul after this life. After we die physically, there is the ongoing conscious existence of the soul. And so maybe he's talking about Lazarus still being alive in the presence of God, even though he has died. But it doesn't seem that he's talking about that because what he tells Martha at the beginning is, your brother will rise again. Not that he already is still alive, but he will rise again. So even if we detect something about the ongoing conscious existence of the soul, Jesus really isn't talking about that. He's not really talking about Lazarus at all. He's talking about himself. 
in one of seven I am declarations that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. There's seven of these I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the vine. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And notice in making this declaration, Jesus is not just affirming that Martha is right in believing that there is a resurrection coming on the last day, a bodily resurrection. He's not just a teacher of the resurrection. In contradiction to other Jewish groups at the time who didn't believe in a bodily resurrection, they were called the Sadducees. You read about them in the Bible. They didn't believe in a physical resurrection. But Jesus teaches it, but he's not merely a teacher of the bodily resurrection to come. His declaration is that he is the resurrection and the life. And in making this this declaration, he is reorienting Martha to what matters the most. He is reorienting her to what matters the most. Because Martha may think that the answer to her pain is getting her brother back. But the ultimate answer to her pain is deeper than that, and it's greater than that. Jesus looks at Martha through her tears, and he points her to himself. I am the resurrection and the life. It's as if he says, Martha, what you ultimately need in answer to your pain is not to have all of your lost loves restored to you. What you need is me. And what we ultimately need in the face of all of our pain, all of our suffering, all of our misery, all of our loss, all of the regrets of our too lates is not to have them somehow reversed or undone. What we ultimately need is Jesus. Quoting McLaughlin again, she writes this, Jesus is not a means to an end. He is the end. If, as Jesus claims, the goal of our existence is relationship with him, finding him in our suffering is the point. Christians are promised that one day God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Revelation 21.4. But she goes on to write, but we are not promised that God will not allow us to cry in the first place. What end could possibly be worth all this pain? Jesus says, he is. God never promises us that he won't hurt us. He never promises that he won't hurt us. Search your scriptures, scriptures over, you will not find that promise. He does promise that he will not destroy us. And he does promise that we can trust him to not hurt us for no good reason. But one good reason for our hurt and for our pain is to pry our hands off of the fleeting things of this world so that we can be brought to the only thing that can transcend all of the fleeting things of earth. And that is him. To find ultimate life and meaning and purpose. We need something transcendent. We have the temptation of believing that the meaning of our life, the purpose of our life, our very life itself can be found in finding a spouse or having children or a family or a job, or a career, or a comfortable bank account. But death will strip away all these things eventually from us. We will lose all of these things eventually, including even our own bodies. The only thing, the only one capable of serving as a foundation of our lives is the one who declares himself to be the resurrection 
and the life. It's Jesus. To know him and to trust him and to have him is to have eternal life. There is no true life apart from him. Because in the deepest biblical sense, what it means to be alive is to be in fellowship with the living God by faith in Jesus, though you die. That's what it means to be alive, biblically, to be in fellowship with the living God through faith in Jesus. And in the deepest biblical sense, what it means to be dead is to be out of fellowship with the living God in your unbelief, even if you remain physically alive. That's what the Bible means by life and death. Life is being in fellowship with the living God, which comes only by faith in Jesus. Jesus' declaration is that he is the source, he is the giver, he is the meaning, he is the purpose of life, of resurrection life, life that is truly life. And in order to verify this declaration, he gives us a demonstration. There is often a demonstration in John's gospel of the I am statements that we read about that Jesus makes. For example, the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6 is a demonstration of the declaration that Jesus is the bread of life. And the healing of a blind man in John chapter 9 is a demonstration of the declaration that Jesus is the light of the world. And there's a connection here in John 11 between the declaration that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and the demonstration he provides in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. We read of that in verses 41 through 44. I'll put that on the screen here. So what we read there is that they take away the stone from Lazarus' tomb. They take away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Turns out, Jesus is not too late. Turns out, Jesus is never too late. Even if Lazarus has to come out of his tomb stinking like four days of death and wrapped up like a mummy, Jesus will prove himself to be powerful, to redeem even the worst of circumstances. Jesus will prove himself powerful enough to bring good out of the most devastating catastrophes in our lives. And Jesus will prove himself to be worthy of our trust and worthy of hope and worthy of all glory. But we need to understand that this is just a preemptive demonstration of Jesus' declaration that he is the resurrection of the life. Because yes, Lazarus is resurrected, but only in a sense. Lazarus is resurrected from the dead only to die sometime later again. Did you ever think about that? Lazarus is raised from the dead, but then he eventually grows old and dies again anyway. He's not resurrected unto glory. And so the ultimate demonstration of Jesus' declaration that he is the resurrection of the life is his own resurrection from the dead, which was a resurrection unto glory to an indestructible life, according to the words of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 16. He is raised to an indestructible life. That's why Jesus is referred to as the first fruits from among the dead. He's not the first to be brought back from the dead. He's the first to be raised in glory. He's the first fruits. 
of the glory of the resurrection of the end times. And so here's something that we need to reckon with. Martha looked forward to the resurrection on the last day, but she had no concept and no framework of a resurrection of the last day that would happen before the last day, that would break into the present. But that's exactly what happened on Easter morning when Jesus rose from the dead. The powers of the age to come broke into the present, and not too late. It broke in ahead of time, if you will, before the last day. A resurrection has happened. A resurrection with a glorified body has happened. The powers of the age to come have broken in when Jesus confronted the powers of death and hell and conquered them. And so the kingdom of resurrection glory has already been inaugurated with the resurrection of Jesus. And because it's already been inaugurated, nothing can hinder its completion now. And because it's already broken in, the powers of the age to come have broken in. When the risen Jesus poured out the Spirit from on high after His resurrection and His ascension. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is pointing us to when he writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He indicates that we can be made partakers now of this resurrection power because he points us to the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ. When? When He raised Him from the dead. That power is active even now. And the truth is that as believers, we have already experienced a spiritual resurrection. We have already been brought from death, from spiritual death to spiritual life by the power of the Spirit that was poured out by Jesus. We are made alive even now with eternal resurrection life. But we're not just promised a spiritual resurrection. We're promised a bodily resurrection as well. As surely as Jesus' body was resurrected and that tomb was empty, so also we are promised a bodily resurrection. That bodily resurrection is anchored and secured by the resurrection of Jesus himself, as Paul would also write to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, where he tells us that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. And when Jesus returns on the last day, that's what we can anticipate. Resurrection glory, raised bodies from the tomb. And what Jesus said about Lazarus in John chapter 11, he will say to our graves on that day, unbind them and let them go. The grave holds no power over us because of the resurrection of Jesus. But notice that this power is toward us who believe, Paul writes. It's this power toward us who believe. And so this declaration and this demonstration call for a response. It calls for a response, a profession of faith, if you will, like Martha gives here in verse 27. It calls for a profession of faith. Have you ever wondered how the people that witnessed Lazarus coming out of a tomb reacted? Have you ever noticed, have you ever wondered how they responded? And it's right to wonder that because John doesn't tell us anything about how they responded. And maybe John doesn't give us details about their response because the issue is not about how they responded. The issue is about how you respond. Because the question that Jesus poses to Martha, he poses to all of us. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Can you profess your belief by saying, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, dead, and buried, and on the third day, He rose again from the dead. Do you believe this? 
not just do you believe it intellectually, not just do you believe it happened historically, not even just do you believe that your only hope of resurrection life is Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life insofar as he is your life? That he is not just a means to an end for you to get other things, but he is the end. He is your meaning. He is your purpose. He is your life. Do you believe this? I don't know how you came into the sanctuary this morning. Perhaps you came in believing this. and You just wanted to be reassured of the truth of these things on Resurrection Sunday. Perhaps you came in and you don't know what you believe. Perhaps you entered the sanctuary and you know you're not a believer. But the words of the Apostle Paul that we'll conclude with are true regardless of how you entered into this room this morning. These words are true for everyone in here. What Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So believe in the risen Lord Jesus and be saved unto resurrection glory. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we thank you this morning for the message of Easter that assures us that life is stronger than death, that hope is stronger than despair, that light is stronger than darkness, that goodness is stronger than evil, that love is stronger than hate, and that your grace is stronger than all of our sin through Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. We pray in his name. Amen.